Today on Categorical Imperatives, I am going to teach you how to break out of prison using nothing except a pencil and a piece of paper, so stay tuned. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. Uh, as always, I am Lockie and Liberal, and I want to thank you all so much for being here with me today. Uh, for anyone who may be new to this program, I want to welcome you. Uh, this is a podcast where we will be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events that relate to law, politics, and culture. Uh, and whether you're new to the channel or not, I would ask if you like this uh, as you're listening to it, if you would just take a moment and subscribe to the channel. I don't put out videos on a regular basis, uh, right now at least, so if you like my content, that is the best way to make sure that you always know when I put a new video out. Uh, and if at some point along the way you want to smash that like button or leave me a comment, question, criticism, uh, insult, whatever you feel like down in the comment section, I welcome it all. So, moving on. Really, uh, throughout history, uh, I think there are a few stories that people tend to find as captivating as a well-executed and ingeniously creative prison break. And it really doesn't matter if we're talking about something that is purely historical, entirely fictional, or a well-developed legend whose existence lies somewhere in between the real and the imagined. One of my personal favorites uh, is when John Dillinger managed to escape from prison using nothing but a gun-shaped block of wood that he stuck in his jailer's back to get his jailer's sidearm and keys uh, and then locked the jailer in the cell that had just moments before been holding him. And a fairly notorious escape artist was uh, Billy the Kid, actually. He was known on several occasions uh, to have been so skinny that he literally just squeezed right through the bars of the local county jail uh, that he was trying to hold him. And then one time, after getting out from the cell, he managed to escape from the building by shimmying up and out the chimney onto the roof. Uh, and then there was the uh, only uh, potentially successful escape from Alcatraz. We actually don't know if they successfully made it or not, but what we do know uh, is that three inmates managed to make an inflatable raft uh, out of uh, basically waterproof raincoats that they glued together uh, and they attempted to paddle towards the mainland. Uh, no one knows if they made it, but they did get off the island. Then there was that time Tim Robbins was once uh, crawling through that pipe that was carrying raw, untreated sewage water just to uh, escape from Susan Sarandon. Uh, this was a scene that he would later dramatize in 1993's Academy Award winning film, The Shawshank Redemption. And there is, is, of course, the famous World War II prison break that took place in a POW camp that was known as Salag Luft III, where 73 Canadian and British Air Force officers managed to escape through three separate tunnels dug from inside their barracks to the outside of the camp. But uh, as clever as all of these are, 
uh, there really is nothing that quite has the simple elegance of using a small piece of paper to fling the doors of your jail wide open. And this is the magic of habeas corpus. So this came up uh, a couple days ago as I was talking with people about the um, alleged goings on in uh, Portland recently where we're hearing all these rumors about uh, unidentified federal officers, you know, disappearing people is the term they use by pulling them off the street without warning, without identifying themselves as federal officers, without showing any kind of warrant or any giving any specific cause for the arrest and then holding them for inordinate amounts of time. Now, I sincerely um, doubt all of that is true, uh, but something strange is going on. But really, that's not I'm not interested in litigating that question today. It just got me thinking uh, more generally about if someone found themselves in a situation where they believed that they were being detained or under arrest unlawfully, what could they do about it? Uh, and not only what could they do about it, but what could they do about it uh, in a situation uh, like that, where they're not going to have access necessarily to legal counsel for quite some time, uh, if, if they even get access at all before they were released. So what could you do uh, by yourself without having to retain legal counsel? And the answer is petition for habeas corpus. So in this episode, I'm going to be discussing habeas corpus generally from its earliest days in the English common law uh, and here in America, uh, where it has been around since the time that we were still 13 English colonies right up to today. Now, real quick. This is not legal advice. Uh, seriously, if you want legal advice, uh, backed up by a guarantee, you should hire a qualified attorney who can address your concerns. But what I want to do today uh, is uh, actually when we are done kind of talking about the history of habeas corpus, I am going to show you guys the basics of how one can fill out their own habeas petition uh, from inside jail and get a hearing uh, and, and how to do this successfully uh, without having to necessarily retain counsel if you can't uh, if you can't get access to one or you can't afford one. Uh, so, but again, this this it will not be legal advice. It is education. It is information. Uh, that that is all. I just wanted to make that uh, perfectly clear. So, anyways, uh. I, I also think I want to be clear here too that this, even if that isn't something you think you might ever need or want to have your own, uh, to petition on your own behalf for habeas corpus, and I'm sure most people never have to worry about that, this is really still a very fundamental part of our uh, legal system. And I mean, it goes back, uh, I, I mean, past the beginning of our country, well back into medieval England. Uh, and so this is something that, uh, I think everyone should have an understanding of because it is fundamental to having an understanding of how our legal system works uh, sort of in a larger sense. So it behooves everyone to know at least a little bit about this doctrine. Uh, so whether you think you would need that practical side of it or not, 
Uh, it's all practical, and hopefully it'll all be entertaining too. So uh, let's get into it. So habeas corpus is Latin for to have the body, uh, because it is a recourse in law in which a person can report an unlawful detention and can order the custodian of the person, who is usually a sheriff or a warden, to physically bring the person in custody before the court and then to present proof of the lawful authority to detain that person in custody. Now, many people uh, mistakenly believe that habeas corpus originated uh, with the Magna Carta issued in 1215. Uh, this is not accurate. And they tend to, when you ask them about this, point to Clause 39 as what they say is the source of habeas corpus. Clause 39 reads, No free man shall be arrested or imprisoned or be deceased or be outlawed or exiled or in any other way ruined, nor will we go against him or send against him except by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. However, uh, Clause 39 uh, in this document is inextricably linked to the preceding clause, Clause 38, which reads, In future, no official shall place a man on trial uh, on his own unsupported statement without producing credible witnesses to the truth of it. Now, what Magna Carta establishes here in these two clauses is another common law doctrine that is known as corpus delecti, which literally means the body of the crime. Uh, and this actually refers to the idea that the requisite elements of a crime uh, must be proven before an individual can be tried for that crime. And I realize this may sound so absurdly obvious that it need not be stated, uh, but this common law doctrine it is not part of many legal systems. Uh, it, it, I guess you could say the common law isn't as common as you think um, outside of, uh, you know, Britain and America and places that were at one time formerly part of the British colony. Uh, and a good example of this is the Napoleonic Civil Law Code, which is the code still used by the vast majority of Europe today. And the European Court of Human Rights has ruled that detention is intended to facilitate the preliminary investigation. Uh, in fact, in one well-known example, a man named Luciano Ferrari Bravo was held in a preventative detention for five years while they investigated. He was released when they decided that there was insufficient evidence to convict him. And convict him of what, you may be asking? Uh, and that is a perfectly fair question, with a less than fair answer, which is, I don't know. Nor does uh, Luciano Ferrari Bravo. Uh, as was stated by the Human Rights Council right in their own document in Article 6, it cannot be required in order to justify arrest and detention on remand that the existence and the nature of the offense of which the person concerned uh, is suspected be established. Which is really just uh, another good reason why fuck Europe, really. Um, but I digress. 
So the great uh, English jurist William Blackstone uh, cites, and this is all from his commentaries on the Common Law of England, which came out in 1769. Uh, he cites the first recorded use of habeas corpus being in 1305 during the reign of King Edward I. However, other writs were issued with the same effect as early as the reign of Henry II in the 12th century, uh, such as the Assize de Clarenzon issued in 1166. Blackstone explained that the basis of that writ was that the king is at all times entitled to have an account of why the liberty of any of his subjects is restrained whenever that restraint may be inflicted. And the procedure for issuing a writ of habeas corpus was first codified by the Habeas Corpus Act in 1679. The cornerstone of the writ of habeas corpus was to limit the King Chancery's ability to undermine the surety of law by allowing courts of justice's decisions to be overturned in favor uh, and application of equity. And a century later, William Blackstone would describe habeas corpus as that great and efficacious writ, as well as saying that the writ of habeas corpus is the most celebrated writ in the whole of English law. And furthermore, in treating of it extensively, Blackstone summarized, the glory of the English law consists in clearly defining the times, the causes, and the extent when, wherefore, and to what degree the imprisonment of a subject may be lawful. Although the crown uh, successfully limited the reach of habeas corpus to some of its empire's colonies, uh, it was not able to prevent its use in the American colonies prior to the revolution. It was... Uh, Available in common law in all 13 colonies, and after independence, a number of states incorporated the right into their state constitutions. Uh, now, one of the most notable examples ever of the power and importance of a writ of habeas corpus uh, came in a case uh, that is often, uh, it, it helped establish uh, a uh, common law doctrine that is incredibly important that most people don't really know about today, uh, and this is known as jury nullification. And, and this is something that is part of American law just as much as it is English law, uh, which is that uh, one, of, one of the most, most important and least known aspects uh, is that uh, too often people who serve on a jury are, at least to the best of the court's abilities, uh, kept unaware of the fact that the power the jury holds is equal to the judges in respect that they have the right to rule on both fact and law. Now, this came from a famous trial in London in 1670 of William Penn and William Mead. Uh, it is also alternately known as Bushel's case because it is named for the jury foreman in the trial of Penn and Mead, who was Edward Bushel. Now, Penn and Mead were both members of the Religious Society of Friends, which is more commonly known as the Quakers, uh, Penn and Mead were arrested and indicted for giving a sermon outside of Grace Church in London uh, in what was charged as creating a tumultuous assembly. When the jury rendered their verdict, they found Penn and Mead guilty of speaking outside Grace Church, which was not the crime that they were indicted for. 
and that was for creating a tumultuous assembly. The court refused to accept the verdict and sent the jury back to deliberate again. Again, the jury came back and they gave the same verdict, guilty of speaking outside Grace Church. The judge in the case uh, said that he would lock the jury up until they returned a positive verdict that the court would accept. So the jury was locked away in Newgate Prison, uh, as it was famously put by the judge, without food or drink, fire or tobacco, and without even a chamber pot for their cell. However, this only stiffened their resolve. The next morning, when they were brought back to the courtroom again, this time they had changed their verdict, uh, but they had changed it simply to not guilty. Again, they were locked up and brought back to uh, jail, and then brought back again the next morning to the courtroom. Again, their verdict was not guilty. At this point, the case of Penn and Mead was then simply dismissed. Uh, the jurors were fined 40 pounds each for contempt of court, and they were locked up in Newgate Prison until the fine was paid. Uh, several of them, including the foreman, Edward Bushell, refused to pay uh, the fine as a matter of conscience. Uh, and after two weeks, he managed to get a petition for a writ of habeas corpus before the Court of Common Pleas, and he got the writ granted. So this was the first time uh, that a writ of habeas corpus uh, was issued by the Court of Common Pleas, which is itself a very big deal, uh, and in the ruling handed down by this court that freed the jurors is a now famous phrase in the ruling, and it stated, The jury must be independently and indisputably responsible for its verdict, free from any threats of the court. So this created a common law legal precedent which had been uh, informally recognized but never ex explicitly stated that the jury was an equal in the power to that of the judge and that they were in fact free to rule on matters of fact and law and that even if the law in question was clearly broken but is seen as an unjust law or is seen as an unjust application of that law, it is the right if not the moral duty of the jury to quit. And in fact, this decision um, is so uh, highly regarded because of the direct result of it, the way it uh, instilled both jury nullification and also a writ of habeas corpus uh, into the common law in a new way they had not before. There was new precedent being set. And there is actually um, a plaque uh, celebrating uh, Bushel as well as Penn and Mead. Uh, and this plaque is uh, hanging up at the Old Bailey, which is the jail where the trial took place in London. Uh, and it talks about this being the place where the trial of Penn and Mead was adjudicated with a plaque commemorating uh, and celebrating the establishment in English common law of jury nullification. Now, in 1679, uh, codification of habeas corpus uh, took place in the context of a sharp confrontation between King Charles II and the Parliament, which had uh, dominated by the then sharply oppositional nascent Whig Party, 
the Whig leaders had good reason to fear the king moving against them through the courts, as indeed did happen a few years later in, in 1681. And they regarded habeas corpus as safeguarding their own persons. The short-lived parliament, uh, which made this enactment, came to be known as the habeas corpus parliament because they were dissolved by the king immediately afterwards. Then, as now, a writ of habeas corpus was issued by a superior court in the name of the sovereign and commanded the addressee, which is generally a lower court, a sheriff, or uh, eventually later on, uh, even a private subject, to produce a prisoner before the courts of law, uh, a habeas corpus petition could be made by the prisoner him or herself or by a third party on his or her behalf, and as a result of the habeas corpus act, uh, could be made regardless of whether the court was in session, uh, all that needed to be done was present the petition to a judge. And uh, one of the finest examples of uh, a writ of habeas corpus being used for the first time against a private subject rather than a, another government agent uh, comes from another famous case that is known as Somerset's case uh, that happened in 1772. So since the 18th century, like I said, the writ had also been available in cases of unlawful detention by private individuals, and this was really the precedent-setting case. And it started with James Somerset, who was a slave, who was brought along to England by his owner, Charles Stewart. And as they were preparing to return to Stewart's Jamaican plantation uh, before boarding Stewart's ship, he was served with a writ of habeas corpus regarding his slave, Somerset. And it turns out, while they were in England, several local abolitionists had befriended Somerset, and they had submitted this petition, arguing that by putting James and Somerset in chains, his owner had become his jailer, and that made him answerable to the law. The judgment came down from the English Court of the King's Bench, which is really basically the UK Supreme Court. Uh, and this case decided the right of an enslaved person on English soil to not be forcibly removed from the country. And uh, the Lord Chief Justice, Justice Mansfield, declared uh, the state of slavery, uh, excuse me, that, yes, the state of slavery uh, is of such a nature that it is incapable of being introduced on any reasons moral or political, but only by positive law, which preserves its force long after its reasons, occasions, and time itself from whence it was created is erased from memory. He says that it is so odious that nothing can be suffered to support it but positive law. Whatever inconveniences followed, therefore, from the decision, he said, I cannot say this case is allowed or approved of by the laws of England, and therefore this black man must be discharged. And with those words, James Somerset became a free man. Not through uh, traditional means of manumission, but through a petition for a writ of habeas corpus. Now, habeas corpus uh, is what is known as a prerogative writ, and uh, these are sometimes called the extraordinary writs, the common law writs, uh, or, like I said, the prerogative writs, 
and these are historically issued by English courts in the name of the monarch to control inferior courts and public authorities within the kingdom. Now, if you watch my channel on a regular basis, uh, uh, the one other prerogative writ that you are likely to be familiar with is known as the writ of certiorari, because this is the writ used by the Supreme Court uh, when they take on the limited number of cases every session uh, for discretionary review, which are the cases uh, that most people, they're the only cases that I think most people think the Supreme Court tries. These are the big cases that tend to adjudicate on the most important constitutional issues. And the due process for such petitions is not simply uh, civil or criminal because they actually incorporate, I think this is so cool, they incorporate a presumption of non-authority. The official who is the respondent must prove their authority to do something or not do something. Failing this, the court must decide for the petitioner, who may be any person, not just the interested party. Now, this differs from a motion in a civil process in which the movement has, uh, must have standing to first bring the order and then it bears the burden of proof in following through. So let's talk about habeas corpus in the United States. Uh, habeas corpus uh, here is considered a recourse in law challenging the reasons or condition of a person's confinement uh, under color of law. A petition for habeas corpus is filed with the court that has jurisdiction over the custodian, and if granted, a writ is issued directing the custodian to bring the confined person before the court for examination uh, into those reasons or conditions. And the United States uh, inherited habeas corpus from the English common law in England while the writ was issued in the name of the monarch here, uh, where the original 13 American colonies declared independence and eventually became a republic based on popular sovereignty. Any person in the name of the people acquired authority to initiate such writs. Now, when it comes to the U.S. Constitution, uh, Specifically, uh, habeas is uh, in there. there. The habeas procedure is in there in something known as the suspension clause. And this is clause two located in Article 1, Section 9. Uh, and this states that the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. Now, at the Constitutional Convention, the delegates simply assumed that habeas corpus was a pre-existing and continuing right. Uh, there were some delegates, such as uh, John Rutledge, who opposed any allowance whatsoever for suspending the writ. But in the end, there was an agreement that in circumstances of war or invasion, uh, it should be possible to suspend the writ at least temporarily. So in America, a writ of habeas corpus is actually a civil ex parte proceeding in which a court inquires as to the legitimacy of a prisoner's custody. Typically, habeas proceedings are to determine whether the court has imposed a sentence on the defendant uh, that they had, whether they had the jurisdictional authority to do so. 
or whether the defendant's sentence has expired. Uh, habeas corpus is also used as a uh, legal avenue for to challenge other types of custody, uh, such as pretrial detention, which is the, the form of habeas corpus that I am going to be uh, kind of demonstrating for you guys here at the end, is a pretrial detention. Uh, or uh, also detention by the uh, U.S. Bureau of Immigration and Custom Enforcement pursuing to a deportation proceeding. Now, although the Constitution does not specifically create the right to habeas corpus relief, uh, federal statutes do provide courts with the authority to grant habeas relief to state prisoners. Uh, only Congress has the power to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, uh, either by its own affirmative action uh, or if they have, uh, at times, delegated their authority to suspend it to the executive. This is, however, as a side note, um, an entirely unconstitutional delegation of power. But, of course, these are busy and important people, and we can't expect them to get hung up on frivolous concerns like a constitutionally delegated power. If we did, they would get even less done now than they usually do. So the executive does not have an independent authority to suspend the writ. Now, in the first Judiciary Act of 1789, Congress explicitly authorized the federal courts to grant habeas relief uh, through statute. And in 1867, for example, uh, to alleviate the problem of former slaves being arrested and jailed in the South, we saw a expanding of habeas protection to persons who are restrained in violation of the Constitution or any law or treaty of the United States. In the Habeas Corpus Act in 1868, Congress also amended the act to prevent the Supreme Court from hearing appeals from lower court decisions under the 1867 Act, and in Ex Parte McArdle, uh, ruled on in 1869, the court approved the validity of the Congress's removal of the Supreme Court's appellate jurisdiction. And federalism concerns were also uh, a big influence on the interpretation of the suspension clause. Uh, in Ex Parte Bowman, for example, Chief Justice Marshall drew a clear line between federal habeas authority and state courts. Uh, some delegates of the Constitutional Conven Convention had presumed that state courts could issue writs for prisoners under federal authority, and that therefore Congress could, in appropriate circumstances, suspend the writ in state courts. Now, that presumption was plausible because the state courts were already in the business of hearing habeas petitions, and there was no guarantee that Congress would set up a federal court system anyway. Uh, you'll see if, if you look at the uh, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 9, and Article 3, Section 1, you can see how they only have the possibility of setting up federal court systems. Uh, they didn't actually necessarily do it right away. I mean, they did, but it, it wasn't a requirement per se constitutionally. But uh, Chief Justice Marshall rejected any such claims of authority uh, from the states. Now, in Ex Parte Bowman, he held that the suspension of habeas corpus clause applied only to persons who are held 
under federal control. The Supreme Court had consistently confirmed Marshall's interpretation. In 1859, for example, the court unanimously rejected uh, in Abelman v. Booth the authority of the Wisconsin courts to, uh, to release people, to release abolitionists, excuse me, to release abolitionists who had been arrested for violating the Federal Fugitive Slave Act. In 1953, the court reaffirmed the authority of the federal courts over state courts in Brown v. Allen, albeit with a convoluted and much-criticized opinion. And now we move on to a very famous case known as Ex Parte Merriman from 1861. Uh, this is one of the most well-known cases surrounding habeas corpus here in the United States, and it came during the Civil War when Abraham Lincoln took it upon himself to suspend habeas corpus unilaterally. Uh, 1860 was, without a doubt, the most contentious election in U.S. history. Abraham Lincoln was elected without receiving a single vote from Southern states. After his election and before he took office, seven Southern states had seceded from the Union. In March 4, 1861, Chief Justice Roger Taney uh, issued the oath of office to Lincoln. Despite his inaugural address assuring the remaining Southern states that he had no interest in ending the institution of slavery in the states where it currently existed, on April 12th, Following attack on Fort Sumter, four more states seceded. Despite the fact that this conflict uh, has come to be called the Civil War, the fact is Congress never actually formally voted for a declaration of war. Uh, in fact, President Lincoln prosecuted a military campaign through broad and largely unprecedented uh, assertions of executive power. And Ex Parte Merriman uh, was a case from 1861 which considered whether a president could deny the right of a prisoner to ask a judge to determine the legality of their confinement through a writ of habeas corpus. The writ of habeas corpus has carried over into the American common and constitutional law, as mentioned earlier, and the Constitution Suspension Clause, of course, in Article 1, Section 9, clarifies the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended uh, unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. This clause does not specify uh, whether it may be suspended by the president, by Congress, or by both. And I mean by both acting in concert. Now, most often matters of constitu constitutional interpretation are decided along textualist line, where we look at the words of the text and we use those to clarify the meaning. But the suspension clause is perfectly silenced on where this power lies. So in these cases, the courts may instead take a structural approach to this interpretation. And that is what they do with the suspension clause. In this case, because the suspension clause does appear in Article 1, which is where uh, all powers are delegated to the legislature, and it does not appear in Article 2, which governs the executive. Uh, a structural interpretation of the clause makes suspension of habeas corpus a plenary power of the legislature. And it was in spite of this structural argument that Lincoln took it upon himself to suspend civil liberties, including suspending habeas corpus and imposing martial law in certain areas of 
that had not yet seceded from the Union, such as the state of Maryland. So, in Ex Parte Merriman, Chief Justice Roger Brittani declared that the President's actions were wholly unconstitutional. The facts of the case are quite unusual. On May 25, 1861, John Merriman, a citizen of Maryland, was arrested by a military force and detained at Fort McHenry in Baltimore. On May 26, Chief Justice Tawney issued a writ of habeas corpus to General George Cadwallader to produce Merriman's body. By issuing the writ, Tawney had not ordered Merriman's release, only that the prisoner should be brought to court for a hearing to challenge his imprisonment. And General Cadwallader uh, declined to produce Merriman and instead sent the Chief Justice uh, a letter containing his rationale why uh, he would not be complying with the order. And Chief Justice Tawney then sent the Marshal of the Court to arrest the General uh, so Cadwallader could be held in contempt. That effort was unsuccessful. Tawney then issued his written opinion. Tawney relied on the structural argument uh, and concluded that the President could not suspend the writ of habeas corpus. Only Congress had that power. As he said in the case, I can see no grounds whatever for supposing that the president in an emergency or in any state of things can authorize the suspension of the writ of habeas corpus or the arrest of a citizen except in aid of the legit, uh, except in aid of the judicial power. Excuse me. He certainly does not faithfully execute the laws if he takes it upon himself the legislative power by suspending the writ of habeas corpus and the judicial power also by arresting and imprisoning a man and denying him due process of law. Tawney then uh, reportedly took an unusual step where he ordered that his written opinion should be, quote, laid before the president in order that he might do his constitutional duty to enforce the laws by securing obedience to the process of the United States, end quote. And here, um, it is commonly argued that President Lincoln uh, used his executive powers to defy Tawney's order. Some scholars today use this fact to criticize Lincoln. Others use it to justify broad presidential power today. Recently, however, uh, this claim has been challenged as being among several myths surrounding the facts of Merriman. According to Professor Seth Barrett Tillman, Tawney merely transmitted his opinion to the president. Tawney issued no order to release Merriman, Tillman wrote. It follows, therefore, that Lincoln could not have ignored or defied it, nor could anyone else for that matter. And following Tawney's decision, Merriman was detained at Fort McHenry until he was transferred to civilian authorities. Uh, he was indicted on treason and shortly thereafter released on bail. And six years later, in 1867, all charges against Merriman were dropped. The president never formally acknowledged Tawney's opinion. Uh, Lincoln did, however, defend his decision to suspend habeas corpus uh, on July 4th of 1861 when he delivered a message 
to a special session of Congress. Lincoln sought approval for the actions that he had taken in Congress's absence, including the suspension of habeas corpus. Congress agreed and formally enacted a statute approving, legalizing, and making valid all the acts, proclamations, and orders of the president as if they had been done under the previous and direct express authority and direction of the Congress of the United States. Because, uh, after all, as I've already said, these are important and busy men who can't be bothered with minor issues like constitutionally delegated powers. And uh, Tawney died in office three years later, and I think fittingly Lincoln replaced the author of the notorious Dred Scott decision uh, with noted anti-slavery lawyer Salmon P. Chase. Well, that is going to do it for today. I'm, I'm realizing I've already gone a little longer than I would have liked to for time. So um, what I'm going to do uh, with that, uh, showing you how to do the habeas petition, I'm still going to do that for you guys. Um, I'm going to post this video and then uh, probably the day after this is up, I will post a copy of that video as well. Uh, so that'll still be coming, but I just, I don't like these videos to get any longer than where they're at now. Uh, so uh, I hope you very much enjoyed this. Uh, again, if you like the channel, uh, take a minute and subscribe to make sure that you always know when I do update new videos. Uh, and then I ask people, if you liked this episode, uh, if you could just take a minute and think of one person you know who you think might also like the show, who might find it interesting or entertaining or, or whatever, um, and just share the show with them and help me grow my channel that way. I would really, really appreciate it, you guys. Uh, and then also, uh, if you hated this episode today, uh, I'd ask that you uh, just take a minute and uh, share the show with someone who you think might also really hate it. Because I'm a masochist and your hate kissed me off. So anyways, I'll be back with that other episode uh, tomorrow. And uh, until then, uh, yeah, this is Lockheed Liberal uh, for Categorical Imperatives. And as always, Delenda S. Cartago.